Good morning, guys. It's so great to be here with you today. Uh, for those of you who are new or that don't know me, my name is Evan Thibodeau, and I have the joy of working with the youth uh, at our church. Thank you, youth. <laughs> I'm curious. I-, I wonder if any of you are like me in this. You see, I've realized that honestly, I just love being in control. And before you get too far ahead of yourself and say, whoa, whoa, that's, that's a bit much. I'm definitely not like that. I don't mean that I love being in control of others. Rather, I love being in control of myself. I mean, really, who, who doesn't like that? Like, we all love the freedom and ability to do what we want. It's what we call autonomy. And really, that's one of the great things about growing up. You know, when you're under your parents' rule and authority, you have to do what they say. But as you get older, you start gaining more and more freedoms. For instance, now I get to decide what I want to eat. I get to decide when I want to go to bed and when I decide to clean my room. That used to not be the case. Just think about all the things that we do in order to have control of our lives. We have our own personal cars that we can decide when and where we want to go places. We choose where we want to live. We choose the job that we want. We choose to exercise and eat right so that we can have control over our our health and over our bodies. We have detailed schedules so that we can control every aspect of what we do with our time. I think you guys get the point. There are so many things that we do in order to try to control our lives. But does it really work? Do we really have that much control? Or is it just a semblance of control? I mean, think about it. Consider this. You may have picked the city you live in now, but did you choose the country or the city that you were born in? Or what about your gender or your ethnicity? Consider your health. It's true that exercise and diet has a lot to do with with our health, but at the same time, we all know of people who, despite seemingly perfect health, all of a sudden end up with some unforeseen horrible sickness. Do we really have that much control? Or what about even your heartbeat? When's the last time that you told your heart to beat? You didn't. (laughs) Rather, thankfully, it's controlled by the autonomic nervous system. Or consider anything that has to do with interaction with another person. All of a sudden, there's a certain part of the interaction that's completely outside of your control. The more that we think about all these different arenas where we don't actually have control, we realize that our perception of control is really fleeting at best. So if we're not actually in control, then who or what is? Is life just a power struggle with no guarantees? I think it's a worthwhile question for us to be asking. For those of you who were not here last week, we just started a new series discovering who God is as seen in the Psalms. This week, the psalm we're looking at is going to address that question of who is in control. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you guys open it with me to... Psalm 29. It should be right in the middle. If you don't have a Bible, 
Um, we have some that you are welcome to use space throughout the seating. Uh, please feel free to grab that. And on our Bibles, you'll find it on page 461. If you currently don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, please feel free to, to take one of our Bibles home. We desire that everyone would have a copy of God's Word, and that would be our gift to you. Uh, before we begin, though, would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open your word right now, I ask that your spirit would lead me, that you would speak through me your truth, not my own. Lord, I pray also that your spirit would, would be in this place working in us here. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you. Lord, reveal yourself to us. We want to know you more and be changed by knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, Dennis did a fair amount to kind of intro how we read the Psalms and just a little bit of the context of what that genre even entails. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but I do want us to think about as we begin reading through this passage, just a couple things that we should pay attention to. So one thing is, Pay attention to things that are repeated. This usually implies emphasis. And also pay attention to the context. Like, who is the speaker addressing? Where is it taking place? And so we're going to read through it once, all the way through, and then we're going to slowly work our way through it, line by line, to try to dig in deeper, understand exactly what the psalmist is talking about here. So follow with me, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people May the Lord bless his people with peace. It's a lot in there. It's a lot that's difficult to understand, but did you guys notice any repetition? There was a ton of it in there. Or how about this? Did you notice who the speaker is initially addressing? Now, usually when we come to the Psalms, we we have an expectation that a Psalm is going to be either addressing God or God's people. And so, at least when I first read this, I had to pay a little bit closer attention because it's not the case for this one. Rather, did you notice who this psalm is addressing? It says this. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. This psalm is actually addressing heavenly beings. Now, what does that mean? Who are heavenly beings? And the passage is not explicit in this, but the heavenly beings could be angels or demons or any of the so-called gods that the surrounding nations worship. From other passages of scripture, we know that 
if we think about angels, these are amazingly fearsome beings. Like anytime someone sees an angel, they're instantly afraid. That's the natural response. Like these are beings that have much, way more power than we're used to. And yet even these supernatural beings are told to ascribe glory and strength to God. They're told to worship, literally, to bow down before God. From Israel's history, we also know that so often, Israel was prone to worship the so-called gods of the surrounding nations. What do you think it tells an Israelite when now they hear that even those gods of the surrounding nations are supposed to worship Yahweh, are supposed to worship the God of Israel? And if even these heavenly beings are to acknowledge God, acknowledge his his glory and his strength, and to worship him, how much more should we as humans do the same? In verse 3, the focus shifts slightly from calling the heavenly beings to worship to describing the actions of God. It says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The first line here, the voice of the Lord over the waters, should, should give you an idea of something that you've read before. If you jump all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, you hear of God's spirit being over the waters. So this idea of God being over the waters should remind us of the idea of creation. Initially, you have the spirit being over the waters before creation is brought into being. And it's at this point in Genesis that, that then God speaks and creation is brought into existence. In the psalm, we see that the voice of the Lord is over the waters, and then he thunders. It's interesting, when you think about a voice that is able to bring all of the universe into existence, all of the galaxies, all of the solar systems, all of the planets and stars, and even our planet able to sustain life, it makes sense to think that that would be a voice that thunders, a voice that is full of, of majesty, and it's powerful. The act of creation itself displays something really interesting about God. It displays an unbelievable amount of control. The ability to even create displays his control, but then the fact that he would create itself displays an even greater control over the creation itself. God is in control of the universe. He is in control of all that we know, of all that we see. At verse 5, we begin the longest section in the psalm, 5 through 9. And in this section, once again, the scenery switches. Previously, we've kind of seen God in, in heaven and telling heavenly beings to ascribe worship to him. And then we saw what the world looked like at creation. And now we're switching to more of the world as it is. And in this section, the speaker paints a picture of a thunderstorm. Follow along and see if you get that idea. He says, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Think lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. In his temple, all cry glory. 
Notice how the repetition continues. The voice of the Lord over the waters at creation, the voice of the Lord now in shaking the trees and shaking the wilderness and flashing forth flames of fire. The same voice that had control at creation still is in control in the world today. It's the same voice. It's just this unstoppable force. The voice of the Lord is so powerful that it breaks cedars, even these giant cedars in Lebanon. The voice of the Lord scares wild animals. It shoots forth flames of fire and even shakes the wilderness. Now, let's think about this idea of, of wilderness. Growing up in Alaska, I was surrounded by wilderness. I grew up in Juneau, Alaska. And so during high school, the majority of my time was simply spent exploring that. Like every summer, every weekend, all my friends had boats, and so we'd be out on the water just exploring some new area. We'd be like heading out, camping on islands, or going down like straits, like 30, 40 miles out of town just on the water. It was unbelievable, amazing to explore, and it seemed like there was no end to places that were basically untouched. You know, you'd climb up a mountain and see that there's just like range upon range after it. It just seems endless. If any of you have flown to Alaska, you've experienced something similar. It's like basically the entire trip from Seattle, all you do is see white-capped mountain upon white-capped mountain just for miles and miles and miles the whole way. God is sovereign over all those places. God is in control of all those places that humans don't even go to. There's plants that thrive there. There's microscopic organisms that abound. There's animals that go through generation upon generation. And God is in control of all of that, apart from us having anything to do with it. God's control is so far-reaching, it's hard for us to even imagine. The psalmist keeps on describing the storm, saying that God's voice even causes animals to give birth prematurely. He strips the bark off trees. Like, he continues to just describe more and more things that, like, the voice of the Lord do. He's just, he's so excited about it. And he seems just to have innumerable things to say. Let's follow just a little bit of the example that he gives and just think about, like, how powerful actually is this storm? If we think about thunder and lightning storm, we don't get these too often around here, but just imagine what he's thinking about, what he's trying to point us to in describing all these different ways that a thunder and lightning storm affects. I mean, really, have you ever considered just the power displayed in a storm? It's just the sheer awe of it. And think about it. When, when lightning strikes, it's basically just a spark that is going either between clouds or between clouds and the earth. But that spark, when it flashes, it heats the air around it up to 50,000 degrees. For the sake of comparison, the surface of the sun is only 10,000 degrees. Now, the inside of the sun is much hotter, but you get the idea. When a lightning bolt strikes, it can strike up to 10 miles away from where the storm is. Thunder also can be heard up to 10 miles away from where the lightning strikes. Lightning itself can even be seen up to 300 miles away. So just to get a picture of what that would be like, 
That's like us here in La Habra, and there's a thunder and lightning storm in Fresno. And apart from light pollution, we'll be able to see it flashing over there. How crazy is that? That's an unbelievable amount of power, right? The, the thunder that we hear is actually a shockwave produced by the lightning. Like, it's amazing. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to a baseball game with some friends in Kentucky. They have a lot more thunderstorms out there. And so about halfway through the game, all of a sudden a thunderstorm started to, to move in, and I hope I don't offend any baseball fans, but... Once I started seeing lightning in the sky, I did not care about the game. Like, that was the real show. It was just amazing. I mean, you guys have been there, right? When, when lightning strikes, everything is like in a still frame. It's as if God just took a giant picture of the stadium. Actually, can you pull up a picture? So after that, ended up uh, having a firework display. And once again, like you guys can see this, but the fireworks are right there. The lightning is just miles away. And still, like, the, the picture pales in comparison. But the lightning was the real show. Like, the fireworks, nothing in comparison to seeing the lightning itself. It's okay. Picture was really just taken at the right time. I couldn't believe it. But so the, ta- the psalmist tells us that the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. That is, each bolt of lightning is sovereignly controlled by God. God's the one that controls every single time lightning strikes. At verse 9, once again, the scene changes, and we're back in heaven. We can see that this is, this is the response, basically, those heavenly beings to being told that they should ascribe glory and strength to God. Follow along at the end of verse 9. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. This picture the psalmist gives us of these heavenly beings all praising God in heaven in their own way. And and notice the language they use. The language they're using is, is kingly language, right? They say, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. This idea of sitting enthroned and enthroned as a king forever. God is the king. He's the king of kings. And we want to notice two different things about the type of king that he is or the, the rule that he has. First off, the psalmist says that he is enthroned over the flood. And this should, this should point us back to, to Noah and the flood that was judgment over the entire earth. And what we should notice here is that part of God's rule and reign is that he is a judge. He is a just judge, and he will punish wickedness and sin. And for us, that should actually be something that is comforting if we know Jesus, because what it means is that when we see suffering and pain and evil in this world, and it so often looks like the wicked go unpunished, that the people that lie and cheat and hurt and steal, end up better off. But we know that God is in control of ultimately bringing about judgment and that no one guilty will eventually go unpunished, but rather God will exert his justice over everything. 
The second thing that we should notice is the length of this reign. What the psalmist says is that he will be king forever. His reign is forever. This isn't a kingly reign that lasts just for a generation or for a time, but rather God was king before creation. He's king in creation. He will continue to reign forever. It's a long time. He is the eternal king. The heavenly beings then petition God as king to intercede for his people and to bless them with peace. Even if you think about Israel again, if you think about these other surrounding nations, even these other surrounding nations, even their gods are petitioning the God of Israel to intercede for his people. What does Israel have to fear when even the surrounding nations' gods are petitioning for Israel to be blessed? Do you guys see what this psalm is telling us about God? God is the God of mighty heavenly beings. Even fearsome angels ascribe glory and strength to God. They bow down and worship him. We see that God is the king at creation. That he is the one that thundered the world into existence. Everything. He is in control over all that we see. And even even now, his control extends here. It extends to the world, and we see that displayed through the power of storms. We see it as thunder shakes trees in the wilderness, how it even causes deer to give birth. God's control extends to every aspect of creation. But then we also see God's control as king, as the one enthroned above everything. We see that God is the king whose reign has no end and whose dominion has no bounds. He is the king. This is the Lord. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. When we see that God is absolutely in control, some questions might be raised for us. Because the truth is, when we hear about anyone having absolute control, the hairs on the back of our necks start to raise. Because we tend to think about all the people that have had that type of control and have simply abused it. Absolute power in most circumstances is a terrifying idea. I mean, think about the words that we have to describe that. We talk about someone being a dictator, a tyrant, or a despot. These are not words that have good connotations. You know, we think about, for instance, Joseph Stalin, who like during his reign, brought about the deaths of 10 million of his own people. Or Pol Pot or Mussolini or even Hitler. The idea of one person holding such a great amount of power is terrifying because it sets up an opportunity for abuse and so often that's just what happens. So the question is, how is God different? How can we know that he isn't simply going to abuse his power in similar ways? It's a good question. The reason comes down to a couple different things. First off, it comes down to the relationship that we have with this God. And it comes down to the character of this God. We are not simply talking about God having absolute control. We're talking about our God having absolute control. Let me show you what I mean as we Read through. Did you notice how many times 
the phrase, the Lord showed up? If you take a look, it's, it's all over there. In the 11 verses of this psalm, it shows up 18 different times. And so we have to ask, what is the importance of that? What, is, what does this name for God mean? And this isn't just any name for God. You'll notice if you're reading the ESV that it shows up in small capital letters. And when Lord shows up like that, it usually means that the word being used there in Hebrew is Yahweh. This isn't just any name for God. Rather, this is God's personal name. It's a personal name for God that he gave to his people Israel at a specific time in their history. If you guys remember back to the burning bush, this is when God, one of the times that God gave this name to his people. So we can follow up with the story in the book of Exodus. You don't have to turn there, but just... Just thinking through this. In Exodus, we see that Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and God hears their groaning, and God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. God calls Moses to deliver his people, Israel, from slavery. And Moses is kind of unsure about this plan, and so he begins to ask God some questions. He asks him, if Israel asks me what, what your name is, what should I tell them? And this is the reply that God gives Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, here Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God tells Moses the name that you're going to tell the people like so that they know who has sent you is Yahweh. Yahweh has sent me to you. This is the name that God gives to his people at the burning bush when he prepares to save them, to, to take them out of Egypt. It's the name that he gives to his people when he ratifies, he renews the covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. This is the personal name for God. It's a personal name that God gives to his people to understand that has to do with their relationship to him. But not only is Yahweh the personal name, but Yahweh also is connected to the understanding that God will redeem his people. He redeems his people out of slavery. And honestly, this is one way that we see God's sovereignty, God's control displayed is in the fact that God uses his control and his sovereignty to save his people. Right? We saw this in, in Exodus. Yahweh rescued his people out of bondage in Egypt. He brought them out with signs and wonders. He parted the Red Sea. God uses his power in this way to rescue his people. But, but think about all the other times throughout Scripture where we see this happen. Right? Even before Exodus, remember how God sent Joseph to Egypt in order to save Israel from dying in a terrible famine. Or Remember how Yahweh delivered Israel from the Philistines in the story of David and Goliath? At that point, David says, it's Yahweh who saved me from the bear and from the lion. He'll deliver me from the Philistines as well. Like, he is the deliverer. Or, how about how God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions when Daniel was thrown into the den? God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. Or how about how God displayed his power and control as he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace? Or 
during a couple different reigns of kings of Judah, we see a similar thing where God saves his people from impending almost absolute destruction from surrounding nations. During Jehoshaphat's reign, this happens where there's three different nations that are coming against them, and God sends an angel into the camp to, or no, sorry, switching up stories. During Jehoshaphat's reign, what God actually does is he turns all the different uh, peoples against them, children, has them fight each other instead of fighting against Israel, and they destroy themselves. Later on, we see in Hezekiah's reign that, once again, it's now the Assyrians that are attacking Judah, and God instead sends an angel to destroy everyone in the camp that is strong, like the strongest of men and all the leaders. And thus the rest of the army just goes home defeated. God fights for his people. Or remember in the book of Esther, how Haman sought to destroy all of Israel, all of the Israelites that were under the king's rule, and God had put Esther in a place so that she was able to petition the king to keep that from happening. God sovereignly delivers his people. He has the habit of using sovereignty to save his people. But even more than that, there was a time when God's people were in even a worse state than all of those, worse than being in a fiery furnace, worse than having armies aligned against them, worse than, than slavery, worse than any of these others, because this is a time when Israel has gotten themselves into their own deepest problem. They've rebelled against God. They've turned from him into their own ways. They've gotten so bad that there is no hope of them saving themselves. Honestly, they're as good as dead, and because of their sin, they deserve death. They're fully unable to save themselves. They've, they've turned from worshiping Yahweh and rather start worshiping created things rather than the creator. They're described as being adulterous, as unfaithful spouses. Even in that despicable and broken state, God sought to bring about a way of restoration. Over the course of generations, Yahweh foreshadowed this. Every prophet pointed to this moment. Every story of redemption ultimately was pointing to this story of deliverance. Finally, at the fullness of time, Yahweh sent his son. He stepped out of heaven. He became like us in every way. He put on flesh. He was born like us, although unlike us, he never sinned. Deserved no punishment, and yet because of that was able to step in and take the punishment that we deserved. God sought a way to reconcile us to himself through Jesus, ultimately sending him to die on the cross where he died, where he was buried, and where three days later he rose from the dead, defeating death and sin, and giving us the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Guys, this is Jesus. This is the ultimate example of God's control over creation, of God's control over the world. It's the ultimate example of God's sovereignty. It's the ultimate example of God's power, of his strength. This is Jesus. What do we do with this? What do we do with understanding that God has used his unbelievable power that that shakes the cedars of Lebanon to create a way for us to be brought back into relationship with him. For some of us in here, you may never have chosen to 
submit to God's control in your life. Rather, you're still holding on to your semblance of control. You don't want to let go. I'm wondering if maybe you're starting to realize that it doesn't work, that the amount of control you think you have, you don't. And that the only way to actually gain control is to submit all your control to the only one who has absolute control, the only one who is truly in control. If that's the case, and and you're in the place where you're coming to that, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk about the opportunity that you have to choose to surrender to a God who loved you so much that despite he has absolute power, he's willing to humble himself and become like us to bring us back to him. For the rest of you, you already have chosen to surrender to God's control in your life. And for that, you can be so grateful that God chose to bring you out of that darkness, to bring you under his control, his rule and reign. But I'm wondering if you're like me and and having to think through this idea of, of God's absolute control and wondering, how well am I doing it at daily submitting to God's control in my life? Or am I still acting as if I'm the one who's in control? Do you need to continually submit to the one who is truly in control, who you can fully trust because he uses his control to deliver you, to bring about redemption. You can trust him. He's trustworthy. He deserves our submission. He's God. He is our God. That's Yahweh. Would you guys pray with me? Father, you the God that has eternally existed. You have reigned forever. You reign in creation. You reign in this world. Even heavenly beings ascribe glory and strength to you. Lord, and yet you did not stay distant from us, but even when we turn from you, you chose to use your power to create a way for us to be brought back into relationship with you, to reconcile us to yourself. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We love you and we trust you. We pray that you would help us to trust you more. In your son's name we pray, amen.